BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, I'm Whitney Port and this is With Wit. A lot of you may know me from reality TV and the reality is a lot's happened since the hills. With Wit is dedicated to having real, raw, and occasionally ridiculous conversations with the people who have had a profound impact on me. Life-changing moments, life-changing people. Because on With Wit, very little is off-limits. Hi guys, my guest today is a self-made serial entrepreneur who defies convention while being a vocal advocate for women. Cindy Eckert has had a distinguished 24-year career in healthcare. In only the last 10, she has started and sold two businesses for more than $1.5 billion. First, Slate Pharmaceuticals, which redefined long-acting testosterone treatment for men. Then Sprout Pharmaceuticals, which broke through with the first ever FDA-approved drug for low sexual desire in women, dubbed Female Viagra by the media. I was drawn to interview Cindy because she's using her success to help women achieve the outcomes she has had. I'm so excited to learn from Sydney. Here she is. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, Sydney. I'm so excited to talk to you. I have read all about you and you have made it so far. And I kind of want to start from the beginning just so everyone can really get to know you. Yeah. Where are you from (laughs) and what was your childhood like? Oh my gosh. So I'm from upstate New York, Rochester, New York, way upstate. Okay. um, And literally like a blue collar town. Where you were Irish or you were Italian, your you know parents worked in the factory, except for my dad, who was a total adventurer. Okay, and so when I was in the fourth grade, my dad came home and he said, "What do you think about going to Fiji?" And I didn't even know where Fiji was. I went to the Globe (laughs) in the living room and like swung it around and realized (laughs) it was the other side of the world. And he goes, "Great, because we're moving there." And so he, through the State Department, moved us from Rochester, New York to the Fiji Islands, which is a pretty radical change. I went there for my honeymoon, so I know how I far know. away yes, that is. very far. And, yeah. and, it, and I hate to date myself, but yeah. before there was some of the five-star resorts in the Fiji water and those things that we know about it today. And it was really, as you might imagine, incredible culture shock. I'm sure. And then I went on a series from there every year from the fourth grade through my senior year of high school, I changed schools. And we moved, whether it be from to Fiji, to Rome, to D.C., back to Rochester, back to D.C. Oh so I had gosh. a very like crazy childhood in terms of disruption. You just had to adapt at yes. all times yeah. and make new friends and be okay with For it. For sure. That's really scary as a kid. Oh, I mean, you know, I went kicking and screaming. Like I was the perpetual 
new kid and I had to stand on the outside of the room. And finally, you'd get to the place where you were accepted and there were friends and your parents would be like, pack your bags because we're going again. But then you look back on it, right? And the things that shape you. And it made me really adaptable. Yes. And I think really comfortable with uncomfortable things. Right. Which is what I've taken on in my career. Yes, very much so. So what were your interests as a kid? And what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Or what did you want to be? You know, it's so funny. So I have two big brothers. Yes. And they would tell you that like every game that I played or made up, I was the CEO of. Like it was somehow. (laughs) And I I think actually that started in a very manipulative way and that my big brothers would not play with their little sister. And so I created like CK's kitchen. And that basically meant that I would go bring them things from the refrigerator to the couch. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And that was about the only way they'd play with me. But, you know, it was funnily enough, like when I was really little, from the time I was little, I think I kind of dug companies Like, what was it that was cool? And what were the rituals? Like, where did my parents love to take us? And so I probably always had that at the center of it. Not not that I was particularly conscious about that. But when I look back, I think that. Always like a little bit of an entrepreneur. Yeah. Always hustle. Always hustling. (laughs) So what did your parents do? And do you feel like your parents played any part? Well, I'm sure they did. But what part do you think they played in you becoming this like amazing entrepreneur? Uh, So neither were entrepreneurs. My dad is a huge huge adventurer. My mom is adventurous in the sense that she's from Mississippi and married a Yankee. (laughs) So she married, I still tease that when you get our families together, you need a translator between the North and the South. (laughs) So she was a rebel of her own sorts. But you know what I will tell you really shaped it is, and my brothers and I like joke about this all the time, that when we would go to our parents and ask for help with homework, they would always say the exact same four words. And they would say, well, what do you think? And it was infuriating, right? Because you're like, like, I just want to know the answer. answer. Just help me. I want to ace this one. Yeah. And they were really, sometimes I think they were just tired and they didn't want to help. Right. Uh, But really, I think the master plan was they were cultivating our curiosity and our independence. That was huge for me. If they weren't going to give me the answer, I was going to have to go out and find it out for myself. And in order to do that, you were listening to a lot of different people's opinions, which was making you form your own mm-hmm. of what that was going to be. And I think that shaped us a lot. They've always cultivated curiosity, learning, going out there and figuring it out for yourself. And really wanted you to problem solve. My husband totally. is a lot like that. Like he'll watch Sunny play with something and stumble into a, like a little dilemma or something yeah. he has to get through. And kind of my instinct is to go and rescue him and, and be like, no, here's how you do it. Sure. But a child development specialist told me like, let him try to figure it out mm-hmm. until he asks for help. And then you can sort of point them in the right direction. Right. But I think there is so much power in your parents being like, no you doubt. need to to get from A to B and figure out what it takes That's right. to get there. Yeah. No, I'm, yeah. very, I'm very grateful for it. Wasn't yeah. in the moment when they weren't helping me. Right, of course. <laughs> right. I'm very grateful for it now. So did you go to college? What did, did. you study? Yeah, okay. so I went to, what's so funny is I moved, as I told you, every year, fourth grade through my senior year of high school. Senior year of high school, I ended up right outside of D.C. And my criteria for going to school was I'm not moving again. Yeah. So I went to school in D.C. I don't blame you. You're like, I need yes, some stability. I and know. now I have control over that it. That was it. Like yeah. I would only apply to colleges right there so I didn't have to move. And I studied business. And okay. I had a great 
business professor who, you know, I think saw this curiosity in me, this sort of love of businesses, what makes one so special, one better than the rest. And she definitely was a huge uh, influence in my life in that she would always make me do projects, reporting to her on different companies. And from that made a decision that and a unilateral decision, I was going to go work for Fortune's most admired company. Oh, my gosh. Because if I went to work for the best, well, then I could take it anywhere. And I think it could have been any company, any sector at the time. That wasn't the love. The love was the best. Right. Um, And that's how I started my career. I went to work for Merck. Okay. Because they were Fortune's most admired. What do they do? Pharmaceuticals. Okay. Because that's how I what, really ended up there. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, was going could, to ask what was the sure. step to get you into pharmaceuticals? Like, that, did you have a medical background or no? That was it. And I yeah. will tell you, like I said, it could have been, you know, it could have been IBM. It could have been whoever it was at the time. And it happened to be pharmaceuticals. I went to learn from them. I went in in sales. The surprise was is how much I fell in love with the science. Right. Even though I don't know that I would have said that earlier, you know, in school or anything else. I loved business. But the love of a business that could create incredible change in people's lives, that was the magic. So going from being on the business end of things to then developing this drug, which we're going to talk about. Tell us about, you know, the shift from being kind of like behind the scenes working on the back end of the business to then now owning your own business and developing this drug. Like, how did that happen? And then tell us about the drug. So I'll tell you, in this company, I went, you know, learned from the best, became very clear very quickly. Mm -hmm. Like I was a number. Yes. I was in this huge monster organization. And like I said, I have two big brothers. They could tell you like that was not going to work if people weren't listening to me. Um, I wanted to be heard. I wanted to make a difference. And really because of not only that, but also actually watching one of my big brothers who was in a startup at the time. Okay. So this early days.com and I'm looking at him and I'm going, wait a minute. Like one, like you're constantly having to do new things. Uh They're constantly changing what they're pushing you to do. Uh And you have equity, like you have skin in the game for what you're creating. The hell with this. Like, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, and you're your own boss. And I started moving smaller. That was it. That was the spark. They were going to go public. And they had a friends and family round. And I can remember like I ate, you know, ramen noodles every day for a year and collected all the like little <laughs> cash I could put on the side to invest. to invest in that. And I did it. They went public. I made money. And I was like, buy, buy corporate. Yeah. Um, that's what I'm doing. And that started this, you know, sort of mad dash in my career to chase innovation, to go smaller, ultimately until I started something from scratch by myself. You realize you know, these are really smart people that you're getting exposure to. These are hard workers, but they're not smarter or harder working than I would be. And I think that's always the light bulb moment for entrepreneurs of, I'm going to do this for myself. Right. So tell us about the business that you yeah. started yes. and what drove you to do that. Yes. So the business I first started, it had the only FDA approved long acting testosterone for men at the time. Okay. So it was a kind of a cool space. Why am I in sex? I like to say I'm Irish Catholic, right. like, of course. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, what is the personal connection? Right. Were you, people not talking about it when you were young? And so as an adult, you were like, this is so interesting because the, this has been this taboo topic. I'll or, tell you the truth of it is it's such a cool space in medicine because yeah. it's still relatively young, um, like in terms of all the discovery and everything else. So it's a very cool, you know, innovative space anyway. 
anyway. And when everybody else is running away from something, it's typically my signal to run in. (laughs) Um, I'll take it on because I don't have that same risk sensitivity, Mm -hmm. probably because of my childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was really the clean slate. My company's name was Truly Slate. I was going to go out. Like here I was in all of these environments, even small ones, and I was uninspired. I was going to do well. I was achievement oriented. But I thought, well, there's got to be a lot of other people like me. What if I just put us all together in a room, did it on our own terms? What would we accomplish? And in four years with that company, we were the second most prescribed testosterone among urologists. It was a rocket ship. Wow. And it was so much just about the culture of the company that was fundamentally different than our industry. So I loved this industry for what it can do. Mm -hmm. I hated how it got it done. Right. And that was like, I'm going to do it differently. We're going to show up differently. And when I was there building this company for men, that's when I got a beat on the science for women. So I'm inside of Slate Uh building this great and profitable company. And lo and behold, there are at the time 25 FDA approved drugs for some form of male sexual dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Not a single one for women. That's so crazy. Are you kidding? Yeah. So like, crazy. I'm not talking that long ago. Right. Like, there's nothing for women, even though we know the incidence of things biologically going wrong in the bedroom for women is the same as men. Like, are you kidding? I was a spectator to this science and then made this radical decision. I'm going to take this profitable company and men, sell it. Yeah. Turn around to my shareholders who are looking at me like, wait a minute. And I said, give me some of that money back. We're going again. And we're going to break through with the first ever for women. Did you have proof that this could work before you did that? I mean, if I were an investor or a shareholder, I'd be like, I need to see some (laughs) proof that this could happen. So what was happening is this German company had discovered the science. And, you know, in medicine, one of the biggest breakthroughs in the last 10, 20 years is brain scan imaging. Mm -hmm. It's taught us so much of conditions of the mind that we cannot see. And so what we knew is that for women, desire starts in the brain. Mm -hmm. You need this balance of these brain chemicals that basically control excitement and inhibition to respond to sexual cues. Okay. So take a woman with this condition. It's called hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So that's essentially someone that doesn't have any sexual desire. Used or to, used to have desire. it low. Yeah. Used to have desire they were happy with. It's change. It's causing them a lot of distress. Put her in MRI. Put a woman with the normal ebb and flow of desire. She's happy with her level put them both in, expose them to some kind of erotic cues, their brains light up totally differently. Interesting. And I'm building this male company and I'm watching the science emerge for women. And I'm watching all these big companies who have this extraordinary market potential here, just based on the prevalence, walk away. And that was really the decision to sell it off. There aren't a lot of women that run, unfortunately, healthcare companies, 3%. Right. Interesting. And so I spent a year actually inside of my male company just talking to women who were dealing with this. And when I talked to them for a year, I thought, well, by God, if I'm listening to them, so too is everybody else. Right. So too will the FDA listen to them. Because what was so clear to me when we, in black and white, saw a scientific answer, a scientific biologic basis for women to have this condition, it wasn't the science that was having everybody to run away. It was a narrative. And this is the truth. Something goes wrong for a guy in the bedroom. We go, oh, so important. Right. Let's One, get this figured so out. So important. And mm-hmm. of course, it's biology. Mm-hmm. Something goes wrong for women. We're like, well, 
does it does it really matter if right. she has more sex? And and you know, she's probably just she should just have a bubble bath. Right. She should just Truly. relax. Right. That is the she's just having that, a bad day. And I'm I'm listening to this story after story after story of women struggling with this, losing their marriages over it, losing right. their sense of self over it. Right. I'm seeing these brain scan images. I'm looking at this being the feedback we're giving them for a condition yeah. that we've known about in the medical literature since the 70s. And I thought, hell no, not on my watch. And that was the selling off the company, take it on. Oh my gosh, so incredible. So it's essentially, I mean, for me in layman's terms, yes. is it kind of like what an antidepressant does? Such a good parallel. So I love that you said that. I'm always careful because I will tell you one of my very first interviews male reporter. Yeah. He's like, aren't these women just sad? Yeah. So I, I feel sad, very naive for asking it, but no, yeah. The parallel that we all know that works on brain chemistry. So brain chemistry regulates a lot of our responses, right? Like yeah. these mood disorders, actually your sex drive, all of that is these key chemicals, dopamine and serotonin. Uh -huh. And for about 10% of women, something goes off kilter there. And when it goes off kilter, you know, all of a sudden their brain is working against them in essence, when it comes to sex. When we have sex, we get actually very animalistic. We right. sort of shut down all the brain to sort of respond to the act. Yes. Um, and what we see for women with this condition is literally their brain's not quieting. And they describe it that way. They're like, I'm lying in bed and I'm doing my to-do list. I'm thinking about this. Like I can never sort of get Be into in the, the moment, zone, yeah. which is exactly what we're seeing mm -hmm. in the brain scan. So, so what the uh, medication does is it works on restoring that balance. So the parallel to an antidepressant is so helpful, I think, in the context of what we already understand that works similarly. Also, you don't take an antidepressant and become euphoric. Right. Or you don't pop a pill and like, there you are. Right. You go back to a normal range that mm -hmm. you once knew. Mm -hmm. Same thing with this medication. It restores you back to where you once were and you were happy with your level of desire. Okay. So how long did it take you yes. to <laughs> go from starting now the second yes. company yeah. to then making it actually happen and showing proof that it worked and yes. then selling it. Yeah. So it took me about six years in the regulatory queue. I mean, that is pretty short, don't you think? I mean, I yeah. don't know the industry well, as well so as you do. So from the beginning of science, it would be it would be almost 15 years yeah. from the beginning of the scientific study. From the time of the studies are done. Yes. Now I go through the process for the FDA to approve it. That's six years. I'll give you a just a parallel. Yes. So when Viagra got approved, and you could argue Viagra treats men's most common sexual dysfunction. This drug treats women's most common sexual dysfunction. They got approved in six months. Oh my God. Because it met such an important unmet medical need that the FDA fast-tracked it. So if you look at that, if you look at how quickly we will get a drug through that we think serves an important need, it took six years to get the female equivalent, and we had three times as many patients. So it it was, you know, the journey started way before that, mm -hmm. um, but the regulatory queue timeline was six years. That is so incredible. 
It's just so crazy to me that I've obviously heard of Viagra, but that until I met you that I hadn't heard of this and that it's something that women don't really talk about, but that I'm sure many people are actually taking because women tend to feel like shameful about this kind of thing. They feel like there must be something wrong with them if they're feeling this way. And it's the same kind of narrative I feel like as miscarriage. I unfortunately suffered a miscarriage beginning of July. And it's one of those things where your brain goes to like, what did I do wrong? Like, what do I have to do next time in order for this not to happen? And what is really happening is it's just something naturally occurring inside your body that that you literally have no control over. So I I love that you talk about it. And mm. that's so much of what this work has been for me mm-hmm. is, you know, why aren't we talking about it? Right. It's sex is part of most of our human experience. And yet we don't have, despite evidence and being able to have a scientific or just a, you know, simple conversation about it, we're very ashamed. And that was so clear to me, like 26 drugs for men, ultimately, not a single one for women until we broke through. That says everything about how we feel societally about this conversation. Right. And so women sit in their shame. And, and they feel stigmatized. They feel totally alone. I have received thousands of letters over the years. I've talked to thousands of women who've, you know, shared their bedroom deepest, struggles, darkest, their deepest, yeah. darkest struggles with me. In fact, I'll tell you, when we were going through this process, in no way was it a straight line to approval. I was, um, when I you, was going to yes, ask. In when no you, way. Yeah. And actually, I was very first rejected mm-hmm. um, by the I FDA. And when that happened, you know, that was like the end of the company. I mean, Mm -hmm. they completely controlled my fate. And I can remember the day after that happened, I went back to my inbox just to remind myself why we were doing this in the Mm -hmm. first place, to Mm -hmm. read all the letters from women. And one woman in particular wrote me and she said, hey, I was in your trials. I responded, not all women will. I was in your trials. And she said, I want to talk to you. And I went to meet her for coffee Mm -hmm. and she walked in the room and like, I could see her coming across the room. She was type A, like these classic for this condition, like type A in charge, coming across the room, ran her own company, showing me pictures of her beautiful boys she's raised. Mm -hmm. She's a wonderful husband she adores. And what she said to me struck me so much. She said, I have succeeded in every aspect of my life other than this. And I thought, if that is not a portrait of a woman, a thousand times she'd raise her hands. Something's changed. Something's different. Something's off. What's going on? And she'd been patted on the shoulder. And, you know, not from a place of bad intention, but like in a sort of classic response, patted on the shoulder, said, oh, it's just a phase, whatever. Mm -hmm. And she turned on herself. She thought it was her fault. Like, oh, if only I wore sexier laundry. If only I did this. If only I did that. Mm -hmm. And at the time I said to her, can I show you something? And I pop open my MacBook and I start showing her the brain scan studies to let her know it is completely outside of her control. And I turn back to her and she's crying. And then I'm crying. And I thought, this is why we're doing this. This is the validation that women deserve. Mm -hmm. And so we have a campaign now called Right to Desire just to talk about it, Not not about a treatment or anything else. But for me, if we go to the doctor, we're asked three questions about sex. We're asked, are you sexually active? Mm-hmm. Do you want birth control? Mm-hmm. Do you want to be tested for STDs? What if we would add one question and say, and are you satisfied? Right. I've never once been asked that. Ever. ever. <laughs> so that's something that we're working on with mm-hmm. the medical community. Mm-hmm. Add one question, because if you would ask that question, 
you would give permission to talk about sex in such a different and honest way. Right. You know, society, it's hypersexualized, like sensationalized, you know, objectified right. potentially, or it's totally taboo. And off and limits. Yeah. We exist in the middle mm-hmm. in this real human experience. Mm-hmm. And yet we're not talking about it. And we're certainly not talking about it when we're struggling with it. That's for sure. I wondered though if my doctor asked me if I was satisfied, if what kind of way I would take it, you yeah. know? Yeah. Because there is still like this old fashioned part of me that is like, oh, like, why are they <laughs> asking me that? You know, it's none of their business. But then again, yeah. maybe that's because I'm not necessarily one of the women that needs it. But if I were in that mind space and was, you know, not having a strong sexual desire, I would probably be yearning for someone to ask me that question. Oh, listen, by, by the statistics, 78% of women wish that a physician would ask them. Or or a partner at the very least. It it gives that permission too, to have that conversation. And I think we have to own you know, you can't have a sexual revolution and it only be about reproduction. Right. Like you've got to own it all the way to the destination of yes. pleasure and satisfaction. Babies don't just That's, happen. You, right. Right. And you don't just go into the bedroom every time to reproduce. Right. You, hopefully you always go in for pleasure. Mm-hmm. And I think most we have of the time, honest you, conversation about yeah. it. Right. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Yeah. For everybody's <laughs> sake. And, and if we're having the honest conversation, we look at that complete spectrum. Right. It's a basic kind of right to have that mm-hmm. or the concept construct is that you're there to serve someone else's needs right or you're only you're only a body to reproduce mm-hmm. and that's where I think we swirl sometimes in these you know society discussions um, that can often you know be very politicized and hold us back 100 percent so crazy this is so taking <laughs> me back to the first time having sex yes. and having a boyfriend I will not mention his name but my first my first boyfriend that I was I lost my virginity to and never once had an orgasm for the whole two years yeah. of dating him and I thought sex I was like oh this is just what sex is right but I'm like why is everyone talk like raving about it so much. Like, this is really not that great. He seems to be having a good time. And I mean, luckily for me, I realized that he just didn't know what he was doing. (laughs) But I can imagine, like, obviously, you know, how frustrating that must be for for women that feel like they have no control over it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so true because it wasn't ever discussed. So you you weren't considering that, like, it's supposed to be fun and pleasurable for you too, right? right? And right. everybody else, and that's what happens. It's not everybody else is raving about it. And you're like, well, am I, is some, am I doing something wrong? But then, and then you don't want to say something anything. off for me, but, but you sit with it as if you're alone. And right. if there's one common thread of all the women I've talked to over all these years, it's, thank you for letting me know I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it becomes like, this is common. This happens for all of us and we can talk about it differently, including totally. don't ever fake it. Right. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> Please. That, that should just, that should be on a sweater. Don't ever fake it. Right. We put women on top in there, but you know, really that's so true in so many aspects of your life. Have an honest conversation. It's so true. That is such a good tagline. So <laughs> once you got a no from the FDA, you obviously had a new sense of motivation to make it happen after you met with this woman. woman. And how did you then get a yes finally? I got to tell you, I walked into the office. I met her over a weekend. I went into the office on a Monday and I gathered my whole team around and we were like the tiny little team that could, right? Yeah. And I said, I've made a decision to dispute the FDA. And all their eyes got really big because, you know, fighting the government is definitely the road less traveled. But Mm -hmm. here's why I did it. 
I did it because we had the data. We've mm-hmm. studied this in 13,000 women. Wow. It's double-blinded, placebo-controlled trials. You know, it's very straight, those sort of scientific roadmap. And what I thought was everything comes down to benefit-risk, and that feels very objective, but it's actually totally subjective. Uh And if you don't assign any value to something, then you won't even consider. And I thought we were making a value judgment on whether or not women really needed to have more sex. Mm-hmm. I mean, people would say this as I became a crusader in this, you know, many people have said, oh, come on, Cindy, like no woman's losing her life from this. And what I would say to them is go talk to them right. because they're losing their life as they know it. Right. And they may not even know how much it's affecting Absolutely. their life. I was at a conference just the other day and a woman came up to me, she sort of grabbed my arm and I always know like they're holding on just a little <sighs> bit tight. And she said, I just need you to know, I heard you on something. And she said, you saved my marriage. Oh my gosh. She said, we were already talking to divorce lawyers. Oh my gosh. And she said, and I heard you. And I thought, this is where all the resentment had come in. And, um, and she said, can I take a picture with you to show my husband? I'm so glad we stayed together. And it's just, you know, we don't appreciate that sex is the butt of the joke. We make light of it and everything else. But like, we weren't taking the biology of sex for women seriously. Mm -hmm. And that just doesn't make any sense. No, that didn't sit right with you. So how long did it take then to dispute it? And so we went through about a two year period. We had huge public meetings. I will tell you what, we're small, like who'd ever heard of Sprout, right? Sprout Pharmaceuticals, we're the small private company. And all of a sudden we dispute the FDA and literally Nightline shows up. And we, we, start going like, up you in must the building. Be someone crazy to do this. <laughs> we have to make a my story about you. My whole team is like, they're going up in the elevator and people in our building are like, oh my God, I know what you guys do on the 10th floor now. Yeah. You know, everybody's <laughs> like, what is going on? To the FDA's credit, they opened their doors. And all of a sudden they were talking to experts about the condition. They were talking to women who were living with the condition. And in their sort of final moment, they assembled this huge scientific panel and it's almost like being put on trial. It's not the Supreme Court, but it feels like the Supreme Court of the FDA. And they get to ask us all these questions and the public gets to speak at the microphone and then they vote to make a recommendation. And, um, and when they voted, they voted overwhelmingly to approve the drug. So it was, um, it was incredible. I can, they literally vote no joke by like pressing a button to show what their vote is. And I can remember sitting in the audience and there's a huge screen and I'm holding my phone up and my hands are like shaking like this because it was, it was totally binary, right? It was win or lose. It was all or nothing. Right. Um, And it took, I think, you know, many times of me sitting down going, holy crap, the stakes here are so high. Right. But my philosophy is, you know, win or lose, you see it all the way through. Right. I so believe that. I always tell myself, you know, a daily mantra, which can be a little bit depressing, but also so needed is like, there's no way out but through. Like regardless of the end Absolutely. You know, at least you did whatever you could to make it through. Mm-hmm. And there's only so much you have control over. Right. Did you ever think about what you would do if you didn't get that approval? My greatest motivation in through all of it, I think, to persevere was I didn't want to let women down. Yeah. All of the women who so generously shared their stories and women who came to public. Can you imagine? Like I'm in, you know, wherever. I'm in Chicago. 
I arrange for childcare. I take days off of work. I fly to DC. I stand in front of a federal agency and talk to about what's speak going about my sex life. Yeah. Right. Can you imagine? And I think they were my teachers, mm-hmm. you know, through all of it is the lesson in what it really means to advocate not only for yourself, but for each other as right. women. Right. And so that has been your That's it. lifelong mission. <laughs> it is, so yeah. you ended up selling that company. I did. Are you still involved with it at all on I a am. daily basis? Yeah. yeah. So okay. I have it back. So okay. I'll tell you my crazy story. Oh my God. So yes. this committee votes to approve the drug. The FDA wait, it takes a little bit of time. They come back. They approve the drug. Two days later, I announced that I'm selling the company for a billion dollars. Oh, my God. So I sold the business. How did you get that valuation <laughs> after just two days of having an FDA so approval? So the market size is extraordinary. If you okay. think that the same number of women have this as men have ED, that's a $6 billion category globally. Okay. So it's an extraordinary potential. Mm-hmm. And the big companies, when this scientific committee voted to, you know, recommended the FDA to approve it, they all knew they were going to. And suddenly there were a couple months and all of them came knocking on my door pursuing us. And like, for me, it was entrepreneur's dream come true. They I were going to even imagine. march it across the globe. They were going to make it affordable to all women, but I didn't have a billion dollar happy ending. Okay. So I sell the company and then they go through some business turmoil and they put the drug on the shelf. Okay. So they don't launch it. So my team who fought so hard for women to finally have this option all of a sudden, they don't have the option. It's the, not in the, the drugstores. It's not available anywhere. It's not available. Oh, my God. We break through. We're the biggest news story in the world. All of a sudden, it goes to silence. I can't get it anywhere. It was devastating. How did a company that bought it for a billion dollars then not have <laughs> do anything with it? I don't understand they that mentality. They had all sorts of craziness happen. Their stock price went from 240 a share to $8 a share. Okay. they had It was the last thing in... And they basically were preserving all their existing business and not really growing new. Okay. And so I started showing back up and I said, give it back. And they were like, no way. We made a billion dollars. Like, go away. I said, yeah, but you're doing none of the things that you agreed to by contract. So when they wouldn't pay attention to me, I sued them. And I got the company back for zero dollars, but my shareholders all kept the billion. No way. That is unbelievable. Yeah. So is that company completely out of business now? Or they are still in their own business, but they do not have this product. And and they'll get a royalty on this if we're successful, which is great. Good for them. It's sort of the, you know, if you have to sit on the sidelines for a couple of years, you start thinking about like, how would I do this? And so it's been a joy to get it back and be able to get it onto the market and it's launched. And I can remember, you know, when we got it back, I was doing press a few days later and somebody said, okay, well, well, when's it coming? And I said, what do you mean? It's out. Unbelievable. It's out and women are getting on the product already, like every single day. And they were like, whoa. (laughs) So that's so satisfying. So satisfying. That is such an amazing success story. But it's something that you need a prescription for, right? You do. Yes. But you know what? Some of the fun is in sitting on the sidelines for a couple of years. Here's what I know. Women won't bring this up. There's a day in which hopefully it'll be brought up to us or we'll feel empowered and emboldened to bring it up. And so I thought, well, all of this advances in telemedicine. So I can have a telephone call with a doctor licensed in my state. 
I went to those companies and I said, I have a hunch that women would like to have this conversation from the privacy of their home. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't require a physical exam. It's a questionnaire. Two of them said yes. Um, And so you have the opportunity actually to do this via telephone. If you're appropriate, the drug delivers to your doorstep. So you're not standing in line with people calling your name. And it's been an incredible success that way. That's amazing. I know because some people don't even want to tell their doctors about these things. Even their OBGYN. Right. They don't even want to have to have that face-to-face conversation. and then see them again and feel uncomfortable. I think that's that's a huge opportunity in stigmatized conditions, like Mm -hmm. even mental health conditions, Mm -hmm. the opportunity to be able to speak to somebody, um, you know, over the phone will help people bring things up that they wouldn't otherwise in person. Yeah, I think that is really powerful. So now, so you're still working with this company, but you also are helping various other like female founded companies. I do. Tell us what you're up to now. Yeah. It's really a throughput of the work at Sprout. Like Mm -hmm. to have witnessed that on such a massive scale, I knew that my best work going forward would be, I'm going to reach my hand back and pull other female entrepreneurs to outcomes like mine faster than I got there myself. Right. And so we look for breakthrough firsts, things that the system is overlooking, whether it be the founder, because let's face it, female founders get 2%. Two of all venture capital. And that number has been flat for years. Wow. Um, So there's a lack of access to capital. And I think there's a lack of access to mentorship. And so we can really, you know, I can get next to them and go, oh, I stepped on that landmine. Like step step left, step right. Right. So we have now 12 different companies under the pink ceiling umbrella. Sprout is one of them that came back to me. And uh, they're surrounded by my business team that helps them get to launch. And we have such cool, such cool founders and such cool products coming. Can you tell us about some of them that we can have access to or any that you're really excited about? So I love Leah Diagnostics is coming. It's a flushable pregnancy test. Wow. Only a female founder would have thought of that. (laughs) And, you know, why should 80% of your pregnancy test be plastic? Right. It's not your mother's pregnancy test anymore. And I think what's so cool about her is the conversation of discretion, including, by the way, for infertility patients mm-hmm. who don't want to walk into the bathroom and be reminded that they're not pregnant again. Right. It's devastating. Right. And I think it's a more compassionate, full discussion uh, about pregnancy. Modern fertility is one where you can do fertility testing through a kit I'm working at home. with Modern Fertility. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, they're Afton. a sponsor of the podcast. Afton is so wonderful. Yeah. Their founder and CEO, she's such a dynamo. It is such an amazing and company. And it's about us like having ownership mm-hmm. on that, even earlier, even if you're not yet ready to to be pregnant, to have like a picture, if you will, of what your fertility looks like is so empowering and not feeling like I've got to go to a specialist to do, you know, but but empowering yourself with information. Mm -hmm. And then we have a technology that if I were to dip my finger in that drink and touch a disc in 30 seconds, it would tell me if there was a date rape drug in that drink. Oh my gosh. So it's really cutting edge first. It's, you know, catalyst in social conversations that we should be having. Mm Unbelievable. Love the founders, love the products. That's so amazing. And you guys are, you are based in Raleigh. Yes. North, yes. Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay. The Pinkubator. Right. The Pinkubator. <laughs> no, so the Pinkubator is in right. Raleigh. Yes. <laughs> Do you, have you always loved pink? <laughs> always. So <laughs> yeah. if you look back, but you know, pink for me, there is a healthy irreverence underneath it in that. The pill is pink. People mm-hmm. got the little pink pill and they would sort of pat me on the shoulder and tell me how cute that was. And I think that, you know, when you get to things like that, gender stereotypes, pink is perceived as weakness, whatever that is, you're going to make a choice. You're either going to lean back away from it Mm -hmm. and, you know, feel frustrated or you're going to feel self-doubt or you just 
go right for Lean it. Lean right and in. And so, mm-hmm. uh, so pink is a lot of my shift from underestimated to unapologetic. Amazing. Do you have any mantras that you tell some of the you know women that you mentor when they're having a rough day or they're getting so many no's? Yeah. You know, is there anything that anybody ever told you that really stuck with you? That helps them get through. I have two things. So one is I talk a lot about underestimation Mm -hmm. and I accept it at face value. You will be underestimated. Mm -hmm. I was always underestimated walking into the room. I didn't fit the role, the part or whatever the perceived version of that would be. Mm -hmm. And so I think that if you can know that going in, it's not going to throw you off. In fact, you can use it as an invitation to surprise people. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more fun than walking in and just killing it with competence. Right. So that's a big piece of it. And I I love the quote. It's a Gandhi quote. And it is, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And I talk to the female founders as they go through this process. That's really the journey that they're going to face. Mm-hmm. You just got to see it all the way through to the win. Oh, so amazing. I want you to be my mentor. Yes. But I need to think of one of these ideas in order. I mean, do you just have people pitching you all day I do. long I'm every day? I have the coolest. Are you kidding? I have the best life in the world. Like people yeah. come to me with crazy, fun ideas and, you know, game changing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is it's not only you know this, it's the people you're betting on. Right. You'll make a huge mistake as an investor if you are seduced by an idea because the reality is people execute ideas. A hundred percent. And I'm picking these extraordinary founders, Jessica, who I talk about all the time is a founder of mine from Texas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jessica walks into the room. She's 5'10". She's blonde. She's gorgeous. She's young. And let's be honest, like when she walks into the room, she's discounted Mm -hmm. probably by most of the blue and gray suits on the other side of the table. And she's inventing a technology that will be gobbled up by a huge company. And when she gets a massive check, all of a sudden the next, you know, 510 blonde that walks into the room engineer, all the guys are going to be reaching for their checkbooks. Right. And that's a lot of what we're trying to do is, is change you know, outcomes for women and the multiplier effect, if you will, for ownership. Make them really fucking rich. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> the goal. That's the truth. Yes. Because money is power. And, and no one I know who's wildly successful does it exclusively for money. Oh, It's right. not what it's about. But in the conversation about, you know, women need a voice, women need power. Mm-hmm. Money is power to sit on the side of the table and decide what you want to see in this world. Mm-hmm. And you can use it for good or you can use it for bad. But I think that if I look at all of the women that I'm betting on, helping them get to outcomes, what I know truly is they will pay it forward. Right. And they'll get the next woman to the outcome who'll get the next woman to the outcome. Mm -hmm. And so it goes. Well, and also financial freedom can really lead to real happiness. Like uh, like you said, money does not buy happiness, but having financial freedom and having some success and knowing that you have achieved something can really allow you to do all of the things in life that bring happiness. Ownership has always been fundamental to me and, you know, skin in the game. And everybody who came to work for me, had ownership in mm-hmm, the company because mm-hmm. they you make decisions differently when you own it. Right. And to watch our outcomes and what it's meant to them, mm-hmm. it's not just been about the paycheck. It's been about the decisions to pursue things that really set them on fire. Right. Like I have one guy that worked for me who has gone back and he's a teacher now. And to watch his joy in that and to, you know, the impact he's having on all of those lives is pretty cool. But I don't think he would have done that had he not had that ownership and that freedom. Right. I mean, I see it with my own husband because I'm able 
to follow my dreams and and be successful and do things like this. He has been able to quit this terrible nine to five job that he hated and possibly go back to school. I mean, that's something that he's really thinking about. Or even if he doesn't do that, the fact that I know that he is home with my son right now, raising him is so powerful for me to know that we're not both sitting in an office or going to jobs where we're unhappy and not fulfilled destiny exactly deal yeah well thank you so much for coming i've learned so much from you oh i appreciate you having me on thank you so much and where so where can we find more about you you personally your businesses your handles everything please follow me at cindy pink ceo i promise you i'm fastest there on dm i've just hired a woman who dm'd me i said send me your resume and now she's working for me so there you go that's one um and find our work at thepinkceiling.com and you can find out more about our right to desire campaign at righttodesire.com Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you loved this episode. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review because I want to hear from you guys. You can let me know what you thought of this episode or anything more you want to hear about. Thanks. Peace in the streets.